Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. For months this year, kids across Canada were spiking high fevers and parents had no reasonable solution because there wasn't any children's Tylenol in stores. There wasn't even any in hospitals. How did this happen? It was a combination of factors. In other words, it was another one of these perfect storm crises in what sometimes feels like an era that we're living in that's defined by crises that only happen because of a series of unlikely events. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Mina Tadros, assistant professor at the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy at the University of Toronto, about the fragility of our pharmaceutical supply chain. Tadros told me this is not some hangover from the pandemic, that this problem has been brewing for at least a decade and may actually be a hangover from globalization, a lack of transparency, and many other factors. As always, the interview is edited for clarity and brevity. Mina, thank you so much for coming on Down to Business to talk to me. Thanks for having me. Do you have a sense about when and why this Tylenol shortage started? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of important stories in this drug shortage that illustrates what the problem is. The most important thing to highlight is that although the breadth of this and how many people it impacted is in in a way unprecedented, and, and this is one of the largest shortages I've seen, as a person who studies these things, it's not unique in how it precipitated. Huh. And so it really highlights why this is such a complex problem and why decision makers are struggling to deal with it. You know, the shortage actually, the first inklings of it that we got was late spring. So around May or June of this year, we had one specific formulation of children's Tylenol, so acetaminophen, that started to have a shortage. Now, what ended up happening is that people started finding other products. So, you know, most products have another competitor or a generic. So in this market, with children's suspensions, there's probably two products in the Canadian market. So people move to that one. Now, what ends up happening is that one goes into shortage because it suddenly has a demand spike that it wasn't prepared for. And the original shortage was because there was some manufacturing issue. And there's always something, right? So it could be a manufacturing issue. It could be that a plant shut down. It could be a fire in a plant. It could be a hurricane hit a plant like we've seen that happen. Mm. And then we start to see this domino effect. Now, fast forward to the early fall, we never really bounced back from that. And then suddenly we started to see other products start to drop off. And then the domino continued. They moved into other products. <laughs> they started moving from Tylenol to ibuprofen because they needed something to control fevers. And at the same time, we had this perfect storm of like really high levels of infections and lots and lots of people getting sick. And then with all of that happening, you also had the human behavioral side. Mm. And I call this sort of the toilet paper syndrome, right? So it's the same thing we saw in March 2020, where people started hearing about this. And when they go to the shelves, if they don't see any, they freak out. And when they see one or two, they grab them, even though they may not actually need that. So listen, I'm a, I'm a parent and it's nice to have, and your kids get sick, you want to have Tylenol and you want to have a little ibuprofen on the shelves of your house. Mm. But you don't need five, 10 bottles. And what we started hearing stories about is people just buying a bunch of it, whether they were going to use it, give it to their friends, serving their community, going on their Facebook groups, whatever it was. And I really don't blame people. This is a natural human behavior. But right. all of that was the perfect storm. It sounds like there was just a combination of factors. 
Yeah. Maybe I can take a step back for a minute. For many parents, children's Tylenol, it really is a miracle drug. What exactly is acetaminophen? You know, where does it come from? So acetaminophen is like a, a classic antipyretic. So it's a drug that helps lower fevers and it's used for fever and pain. And I think for parents, what the most challenging thing is literally there's no other option. Yeah. You know, as a pharmacist, all the time when kids are sick and my own, my wife's like, there's got to be something. And I'm like, no, especially until they're six. Like if you read any label, there's nothing we can do when they have a cough, Tylenol, when they have fever, Tylenol, when they're teething, Tylenol, right? So it's like, <laughs> it's a central tenant and it's really central to a lot of the things we do when helping and treating kids. Things are viral, right? They're, you can't even use antibiotics because it's not actually the, the right thing to be using. Mm-hmm. It's produced through chemical reactions. So it's a small molecule drug that, you know, we learn when we're in pharmacy school, it's actually one of the first drugs we learn how to make in chemistry class. When it's produced, it's not like extracted from plants or anything of that sort. There's like a, a series of chemical reactions that are done to produce it. And they make that in large batches. And then that would be the product or what we would call the active pharmaceutical ingredients. You'll hear this term in supply chains called the API, the active pharmaceutical ingredients. So this acetaminophen is probably produced in one factory. And then they ship it to another one and they, they can make tablets out of it. They can make suspensions and they make everything. But that specific product itself is called a small molecule drug and it's made through a series of chemical reactions. Really interesting. For a while, it was still plentiful in the U.S. and it took months to create enough supply to get it back into the shelves in Canada. Is there any reason why it was so difficult to get the supply back up? This kind of dives into how supply chains for pharmaceuticals work. How I explain it to people is that this is a global market in a way that people don't quite understand. So as I was talking about the the active pharmaceutical ingredient, that could be made in one factory in one country. Then that's shipped to another place where they're going to either make it into a suspension, a tablet, a capsule, what they're going to use for it. Then it has to go to a place that's probably going to bottle it, put on the labels. Every country has its own way that it labels it. It's like, for example, like in some countries, they don't even call it acetaminophen. They call it paracetamol. Mm. And they use different strengths. Like in Europe, they have the one gram for adults. Like, you know, all of these different formulations that around the world are used differently. Sometimes they mix it with other things like caffeine. Because of that, there's like a funneling of the products in a variety of different ways. So you have this complex supply chain. So with acetaminophen in Canada at the time for infants, there was only like two companies making it. Because it's, it's a rather small market when you think about it. Suspensions are a little bit more challenging to make. You add more ingredients. And so that's pretty common. Like even in the U.S., they don't have that many compared to when you compare it to the tablets. And so I think what you start to realize is that it takes time and it takes months. And so sometimes when we have a shortage, we first don't see it happen instantly. So like the thing that protects us is because it's so complicated, even if a factory gets hit, it usually takes three months from the announcement of the shortage to when we stop seeing it on shelves. And we're working to discover like how long that actually takes. And we still don't know. But what, from my observations, it takes a couple of months for most drugs. But that also means on the back end to replenish it, it takes months, right? So like it works two ways. Mm. And I think most of us experience this. Like I, I don't know how many people tried to buy any appliances, buy a lot of things over the pandemic. Anytime that there was a ripple in the supply chain because a, a shipping lane was closed or a factory was closed because of COVID, you know, we started to see these supply chain issues. And so if you can imagine... Those are often like one single product. But when you have this complex supply chain around the world for a medicine that has to meet much higher regulatory levels than other products, it becomes really complicated. Yeah. And so I would have imagined that somewhere, someone in the Canadian federal or provincial government in some kind of medical role would have said, let's create a stockpile 
of Tylenol because it's so important. It, you know, affects the amount of people showing up in our schools, in our hospitals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that apparently didn't happen. You know, I think there's some good news. Like there is a department at the federal level that like concentrates just on this. And drug shortages was not a COVID problem, right? We've been talking about this, some of us, for over a decade now. I think what sort of saved us is that there is this department that monitors and thinks about it. And right when the pandemic hit, they were able to leverage new policies to protect us from some of the supply chain issues that we'd been thinking about. So we knew that this was coming. Now, the problem here is that there's like thousands and thousands of drugs and not a single country, even our neighbors to the south, they're struggling with this too, can produce all of their own drugs because you can't afford it. You can't stockpile your way out of drugs, and all those drugs are going to expire, and you're going to waste a lot of money. So then the challenge becomes, which drugs do you do this for? And the very beginning of the pandemic, the government decided to do that for drugs that were going to be important in hospitals that were life-saving or were at really high risk. And so many of those drugs are like IV drugs that we use for ICU patients or inhalers and things like that that we stockpiled. Now, when you look at acetaminophen, as challenging as this shortage was, as a decision maker, I can imagine you didn't see a shortage in the oral tablets. You knew that your pharmacist could compound it and they can try to you know, produce some different solutions. So if you're going to pick a drug to stockpile, we, we don't have a process yet to like figure out which ones to stockpile. But like it's challenging to be like, that's the one I'm going to pick huh. on top of a, a life-saving drug that's IV. Now, there are some things that we could have done better, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, like The policy to import drugs from other countries was actually developed because of the pandemic. So we're lucky that we actually had a system ready to do that and that the government was able to do that. If you can imagine, if we hadn't thought about that, they would have had to restart that whole process, develop it and figure out how to do it. But the fact that they were able to do that was a blessing in disguise because they'd already done that in March. So in March 2020, we actually had a shortage of inhalers that happened because people were running in scared that they needed inhalers because this new infection was coming called, you know, COVID. Right. Anyone who's on an inhaler was worried that they weren't going to have enough inhalers to the point that the shortage was so bad that we had to import inhalers from other countries that were coming in labeled not in English, actually. And so the government was ready for that. But there are some things that I think we could have definitely done better, like making sure the communication around how to access these drugs, like things that we started seeing trickling through, we should have been able to do more quickly. There's so many follow-up questions I could ask here. But like to key off what you're saying, one of the early alarm bells that did go off as the pandemic spread across North America related to the fact that we don't have a single vaccine factory in Canada. Yeah. Why is it so hard to produce pharmaceuticals in Canada or in North America for that matter? So we do produce some pharmaceuticals, right? It's that companies at a national and international level will pick where they make certain drugs. For, to build a plant that's going to build drugs is like upwards of a billion dollar investment. And there's thousands of drugs. So which drugs do you do? So the solution that I've been pushing and like talking about is that the first thing we need to do is figure out a fair system that actually understands our risk. We actually don't know which drugs are at highest risk of shortages. We're starting because some of us have been asking this question for a while. But from a Canadian perspective, we need to figure out which ones are at highest shortage of risk and then which ones are at the most important clinical risk. Because if you're going to stockpile something, you don't want to stockpile a drug that you have 20 other options for. So, for example, like, you know, some blood pressure medications, although they're important, we have like eight other options. And within those eight, there's like 20 different companies that make it. And so you're not as concerned with those. But for some IV drugs that are in the hospital, you literally have no other options. And so you start to have to make those decisions. And then once we have a list of drugs that we know are high risk, low risk, or medium risk, then we can figure out what to do. So 
there's different solutions we can use then. Then we can say, okay, for our really high-risk drugs, which countries are they made in? We, we literally don't know where most of our drugs are made because the supply chain is so opaque. So although it's imported and bottled in Montreal, we don't know that that powder is coming in from China or India where 80% of drugs are made and which region it's coming from and then where it's going. So we actually have no understanding of that. So once we have this list, we can start figuring out, okay, which ones do we want to invest to produce domestically to have a backup? You know, we can do that through tax incentives. We can do that through public-private partnerships. There's all these levers we can use. If a drug is really important to us, maybe we want to ensure that it's coming from two or three different countries. That mitigates our risk geopolitically. That mitigates our risk for, you know, even just environmental factors. Like if one of those countries gets hit by, you know, like a storm of some sort, you know, we have another backup that's there. That means that we have to have an understanding of our supply chain. And then, you know, the last levers is producing a national stockpile. But we don't understand, like we don't have that short list to figure out when and where we could be using all of those things. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. So to go back to Tylenol for a second, a lot of the news coverage was focused on how this shortage contributed to overcrowding at pediatric hospitals and emergency rooms and basically created this crisis in hospitals. I mean, behind the scenes, from a pharmacological point of view, what were you focused on? You know, it's a really important question. I think that, you know, there's the clinical consequences of like people getting hurt. Did, did children actually get hurt? And we don't quite understand like that. What did we see a spike in febrile seizures? Did we, you know, we saw parents going to the emergency room just to get drug, but we don't know if that was like, did it hurt the, the kids? And I, and I think we're going to have to study it. And that's, it's definitely on our radar. But I also think what we've tried to also flag for many of the policymakers is that drug shortages themselves also impact the, a stretched healthcare system. So I'll give you an example. So we did a paper a couple of years ago uh, where we looked at a shortage that happened for blood pressure medications. And we estimate that somewhere, I think it was 200,000 Canadians in one single month had to switch drugs. Wow. Outcome-wise, like no one really got hurt. Like I think we didn't see any negative spikes clinically. But that's 200,000 Canadians that within a month had to go to their doctors, go to their pharmacists, get a call, switch from a system that's already stretched. And now we're adding this extra load that, you know, the same thing with Tylenol when I was talking about earlier, I think we should have empowered pharmacists and different healthcare providers to try to help mitigate this. And we should have had a clear messaging that should have come from the provincial entities, the federal entities. And it should have been, you know, when this happens, you know, we had messages trickling to us as pharmacists saying, you don't need a prescription for this. You know, you can compound it. But we should have just had a mitigating strategy from the very beginning empowered us so that at minimum, we can take the pressure off the healthcare system so that when this shortage happens, it doesn't add to what's already a stretch system. I, I looked online about how to break up adult Tylenol for children. Couldn't imagine taking a razor blade and trying to cut a tiny Tylenol pill into eggs. But and to respond to something you said earlier, we're talking about Tylenol because everyone knows what that is. But there are dozens of shortages of drugs. I guess I'm wondering if you think this is just a sort of short-term symptom, the Tylenol thing, like a sort of small hangover, or if you think this is some sort of permanent condition that we're going to be feeling more often. This is a problem that's been getting worse and worse for the last decade. This is not a pandemic issue. Why? I, I think we're seeing a variety of different factors affecting it. I think we're starting to see that globalization, you know, really puts at risk different components. You know, whether it's a storm hitting one place or a country deciding that they're going to keep all the drugs and then and not export them. Like there's all these factors that come up. We also understand that there was a lot of companies like mergers and things that were happening across the board in the pharmaceutical industry, which drove companies to shut down factories and to kind of find the cheapest price. 
What we also start seeing is that because of competition and things that happen, we're actually not as diverse in our supply chain as we believe because we have this opaque supply chain that we don't have insight into. Going back to that Valsartan example. Uh, right. That's the blood pressure drug. When someone first asked me, the first shortage notice came out, I said, oh, this is not a worry. We have like, I think it was like a dozen different companies making it. But then what we realized is that all 12 of those companies were getting it, the API, the powder from the exact same factory. Where was that? And that factory was in China. So it was the same factory that had the issue. They had a manufacturing issue, which was producing a risk toxin. So they had to shut down and reproduce the product. But then we didn't know that all 12 companies were purchasing it from the exact same factory. Wow. What was the time frame for this? So this was in 2018. Okay. The, the drug is called Valsartan. And we, you know, we've seen this a few times where we think our supply chain has all these options on it. And it's actually in the background, these companies are all getting it from the same place because that's the cheapest vendor. And so I think the first step as like decision makers and policymakers is we need to understand where this is coming from. Like the, the supply chain is too important for us to not understand it. Right. And I think having and demanding that people who want to participate in the supply chain give us an understanding of where it's coming from. And that's going to require some public-private partnership, right? That requires like companies coming to the table, willing to share things so that we can understand that and then moving on from there. It's such a basic ask. It's it's so funny on some level. Okay, let, let's just do like a rapid fire about the Tylenol shortage itself, because I still feel like I have very little clarity. I know it was a combination of factors, but like some explanations out there I've heard, for instance, are that we couldn't import it from the United States because we didn't have French language labeling on it. Is that true or false? So it's that's a sort of... So, okay. <laughs> I know that's not the answer you're looking for. But like I mentioned earlier on, like one of the processes in the supply chain is that, you know, every country has its own regulations. And one of our regulations is French labeling. But there's other regulations too, like just the font size, what information has to be on the box. So they produce special boxes for Canada. They, every country demands it. There's special boxes for the US. There's special boxes for Europe. Every place has the same issue. So, I, I, you know, I think the idea that it has to be French is kind of like it's a silly way to kind of put blame on being a bilingual country. Like that's I, I just want to put this to rest. Like that's not the actual single issue. It's more the fact that every country gets its own products labeled and boxed and packaged to meet the regulations of that country. And one of our regulations out of a list of a ton is French, right? Like, you know, you're picking one of like 30 things probably. And I think what we saw happen is that, like I mentioned, that Health Canada had already developed these policies of importation of drugs that are from other countries, and they were able to do that. But with Tylenol, it was a bit more challenging to find the right product, and there's a few reasons for that. One, we didn't want to bring in a drug that was labeled paracetamol because that could cause confusion, right? The other thing is that you wanted to find drugs that were similar formulations because if you suddenly release into the system something that's like 100 milligrams per ml, versus we're used to the 80 milligrams per ml, your risk for patients and the harms that could potentially happen because parents don't know it or people aren't used to it, double. So one of Health Canada's mandates is ensuring safety of the public. And so you want to make sure that any drug you're bringing in meets our quality standards, safety standards. And one of the components of safety is communication, labeling, all of those important components. I just would have thought like if labeling was the issue, there's got to be a color printer somewhere in this country. Labeling was not the issue. Like the boxes that are coming in are not relabeled in any way. Okay. You know, the first few shipments actually went straight to hospitals and then the hospitals would dispense them in their own labelings anyway. So that was not what was holding it up. I think why they couldn't just ship it in instantly was because they had all these things and they had to pick the right products that wouldn't put Canadians at harm. 
So I think that they were struggling with what products to find, but then also working with the company that was willing to divert supply from another country, ensuring that that country doesn't get hurt, and then also bringing it in. So this idea that got out there that it's because of French, I want to make it very clear that was that is not what was stopping this whole thing. Okay. I don't know how many interviews I did where I'm like, it's not the French labeling. Like the French labeling is part of a regulation and it, ha- it touches on an issue of like regulation in general, mm-hmm. but it's not French. It's not like, oh, we would have brought this box in, but it's French. Like, <laughs> like that's not what was happening. Like that's not really the issue at all. It has to do with how drugs are like maintained, how Health Canada thinks about releasing drugs into the public, but ensuring that they don't hurt people. Like on the other end, like the thing we're worried about is people started splitting pills and doing things like, did we hurt people? Like, did, did, you know, Tylenol is relatively safe, but if you use too much of it, it can hurt somebody. So maybe the timeline is. So in the spring, there was a supply issue. Like there was something that happened that one of the companies was not able to meet. It, it wasn't a demand spike yet. Do we know where we where we get our supply from in Canada mostly? No. So we don't we don't actually know where these are. Like, I don't know where the powder is being produced. We don't have that information publicly. And even when you look at the labeling, where it says it's being made is not actually exactly where it's being made. Okay. Maybe just to keep this all on track, like what are your list of priorities? Yeah. My list of priorities are the same as they've been for the last five years. We need to understand our risk. We need to develop a national list. And then from that list, we can use all the policy levers. And then, but we need to know which drugs to do for which one. We cannot stockpile our way out of this. We can't produce drugs out of this. It's not a pricing issue because countries that pay way more for drugs than us are also experiencing drug shortages. But we need to know you know, which drugs are at highest risk, and then we can figure out all the policies from it. So for me, again, it's like we need better information on where our risks are. And then from there, we can make better solutions and better options. Okay. So we're not even ready to say yet. We need to build more factories or supply capacity in Canada itself. We do, but we just don't know which drugs to put in those factories. I totally agree. I think one of the options is ensuring that we have domestic production for some products, ensuring that we could do small batching, ensuring that we, okay. you know, again, French or from different countries, there's all of these things and, and those should be happening in parallel. But then once you build a factory, which drug are you going to make in there? Right. Are we going to let the companies pick? I'd probably say if we're going to partner with somebody and support these companies to do that, we need to be able to tell them which drugs we're hoping that they make in those factories. We haven't discussed this yet, but there's a shortage right now in some parts of the U.S. Yeah. What's going to happen if pundits in the U.S. start accusing Canada of stealing all their children's Tylenol? Right. But in the background, they're going to say, well, we talked to the FDA. I don't know that for a fact, but I, I guarantee you before they started importing drugs, like they, they sit at tables together and they had to talk to a country that felt comfortable to have some of their supply moved over. Yeah. And do you think, though, that we're going to start to see sort of more competition? No, I think what we're going to see is that French shoring thing where we're going to see like, you know, during the pandemic, when everyone thought hydroxychloroquine was going to cure COVID. So India and China produce 80 percent of drugs and India decided they were not going to ship hydroxychloroquine to anybody. Huh. That's all it took. They just said, we're not going to export this because we need it just in case. So you can imagine there's a geopolitical risk here. Like if there's countries we're not friendly with this, you know, all you have to do is watch the news to be like, oh, yeah, we're not all nice anymore. There's no treaties on you can't hold back drugs like there's nothing out there. So a country like China can say, OK, that's it, guys. We're not we're not sending you this. Wow. Now, they don't do that because the supply chain is actually so complicated. They would get screwed, too. There's drugs that they can't produce either. They produce a lot of the cheaper drugs and some of these more novel drugs and vaccines and stuff like that are actually being produced elsewhere. And so the right now there's like a checkmate. But what happens if like some idiots in power and decides like they're going to just hold back on whatever? Well, 80 percent. I mean, that's a crazy amount of concentration. 
Yeah, but we, that's like an estimate that somebody came up with and we don't quite understand. Like that's an, it's so opaque, we don't quite know. Wow. But so I would imagine you're going to see a lot of governments trying to incentivize some of these drug companies to build into other countries. Exactly. So if you have a drug that's like a medium risk drug, what you want to say is, okay, I want to make sure that it's not just produced in China. Maybe I'm okay if there's a plant in Latin America and maybe a plant in Africa. And that's good with me. You know what I mean? Like I have two or three regions that are not linked. Like I'll be okay. Yeah. Because like random things can happen. Like uh, Hurricane Maria a few years ago hit Puerto Rico. That was devastating for Puerto Ricans. But on a global supply chain level, we didn't realize that there's all these expensive biologic IV drugs that are made in Puerto Rico. <laughs> I didn't even know that. And I'm an expert like that. It's such a big hub for IV production. Wow. And it sent the shortage throughout the world. Anyway, like there's there's sort of a dynamic where like if a drug's important to you, then you probably want to make sure that you know where it's coming from because it, it's not even geopolitical. It could just be a storm. Why is this so much more opaque than say like, I don't know, you know, other supply chains? Because it's proprietary. Well, like, you know, most supply chains are pretty opaque, right? Like, and, and then for the drug supply chain, they don't have to tell you where all the components come from. Like it's, it's a trade secret. Okay. But then, like, when troubles happen, we get the clue. Like I said, like, we suddenly realize that all these companies were actually getting it, one of the powders from the same plant. I mean, with the exception of food, I can't think of another supply chain. You know, like, we're not going to run out of cars tomorrow. Like, yeah, they may get more expensive, but there's a lot of used cars that can be rejuvenated and driven longer or whatever. Yeah. But, like, drugs, like, you need, when you need those, you need those right away. It's like you need them today. Yeah. You know, when you need something, you need it today. Yeah. Versus a car, there's a bit of planning. You're right. Like, there's a lag. Like it hurts and it hurts the system over time. The same way that when we had like, you know, there's supply chain issues with ovens and fridges over the pandemic, but people could survive, right? Like, and you can like find used ones, you can refurbish them. Like there's like a, a market there that exists. So absolutely. I think there's, there's the acuity of it and the severity kind of makes this a little bit more important. You know, one thing I would say is that we know that these policies work. Like we have a paper that came out in the Canadian Medical Journal a few months ago that showed that the policies that were in place during the COVID pandemic at the beginning, like the silver lining was because we'd already been thinking about this, Health Canada was able to leverage those. And what we saw is a flat lining and if not a slight reduction in the number of shortages. So we know that policies can work. You know, we're never going to get down to zero shortages. You know, things can happen. Like I mentioned, like a storm can hit somewhere, you know, suddenly your supply chains are shut off. But the idea here is like, let's reduce the amount of them and the severity, but also have like plans in place that when they do hit, we have a strategy to be able to roll them out. And so what's the next thing that needs to happen from your perspective? You know, I'm looking to Health Canada and I've seen some great work coming out of many of those groups, but I think there needs to be more empowerment from them. And I think there needs to be a, a full conversation because, you know, Health Canada is only one part of the puzzle. Like there's Life Sciences Canada, there's stakeholders, there's wholesalers, there's a lot of people at the table that need to all come together and they're starting to talk. But I do think we need some like a driving force from the federal government to say like, here's the plan. Here's how we're going to lay it out. And here's an investment of how we're going to solve this. Nina, thank you so much for coming on Down to Business to talk to me about this important issue. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That was Mina Tadros, Assistant Professor at the University of Toronto's Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy. Thank you to my guest and thank you for listening. Thanks to Bryce Hall for composing and performing the original music on the show, designing the logo and executive producing this episode. Noella Ovid, Pamela Heaven, and Victoria Wells provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll return next week with another episode of Down to Business. But until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.